My name is Chair Cunningham, as you'll probably know at this stage. I'm the Chair of the Dublin Freelance Branch and General Merdewell. Well. And joining me is Rossa McMahon, who's a solicitor from Limerick. I first came across Rossa several years ago on Twitter when I started following him and paid very close attention, particularly in the last year or so, because thanks to Rossa, I ended up going down to Louth to a small little courtroom in RD in the district court where there was a case going on, two cases actually, one involving CCC Newark. Uh, coincidentally, since then, I now work for them. <laughs> and the other involving independent newspapers. And it was a copyright case, and as I say, CCC Newark and independent newspapers were on one side, and on the other side was, I'm going to use a very useful legal word now, it was an alleged newspaper, <laughs> and they were suing the alleged publisher, a guy called Leo Sherlock, who was also the alleged editor, uh, about several alleged articles which he, ha he denies that, which had allegedly been written by alleged journalists in his employ, none of whom seemed to exist. And eventually, uh, Leo published an apology, uh, allegedly published it because it was published in incredibly faint pink type <laughs> on a white background so that you needed some extraordinary degree of visual acuity to actually read it, which led to Leo being dragged back to the courts again and eventually cases were closed. But copyright cases are rare enough in this country and since Rossa had been the solicitor for one of the parties in that case, I thought it would be interesting to have him come along and talk on that topic here today, and here he is. So Thanks, Jared. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I came to Jared's attention, and in fact, to further uh, link things, really how I became involved in that case was through Jared, <laughs> um, because I think at some point over a year ago, I had um, been tweeting about certain <coughs> that certain alleged publication. Uh, and wondering why somebody wasn't doing something about it, uh, given what people alleged was happening. And um, Jared privately suggested to me, well, would you be interested in doing something about it? And if you did, I might be able to send them your way. So that's how I got involved. And when I Jared... That. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, it's your fault. Um, funnily enough, it was separately and independently that independent news and media were on the same path as myself and CCC Newarked. And it was by complete chance we happened to be at a similar stage in proceedings against the same person. So we were able to coordinate our efforts to some good effect, uh, as it turned out. But when Jared first asked me to speak here today, well, actually, it was back in October. Um, but due to storm Ophelia, Ophelia it didn't go ahead. And uh, he, he had said, you know, you did that case. You might come and talk about copyright. And I said, no problem. And then he started uh, tweeting that I was going to speak about everything you know about copyright law, but we're afraid to ask, which to an audience like this is quite terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's always, I mean, you know, it's always difficult, or not difficult, but you'd be a bit apprehensive about going in front of any audience of people that might ask you questions, but journalists, I think, would be uh, particularly well capable of grilling people. But anyway, um, as Jerry said, I'm, I'm from Limerick, 
I am a simple country <coughs> solicitor, and uh, I would say I'm not going to hold myself out as any expert on expert on copyright or journalism or the combination of the two, but I have a certain amount of experience in both, I suppose, uh, and in that as well before um, I started working in Limerick. I did train and work in, in Dublin in some bigger firms. I trained as a corporate solicitor and I used to do a lot of intellectual property law work uh, before moving down to the country and doing a little bit of everything. Um, and it was that case. I, 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 I won't obviously be able to talk about private elements of the case and so on. It was settled and um, the terms of the settlement are confidential. Uh, so there's a limit on what I can say, but it was reported on publicly to an extent in the newspapers and so on. So uh, it, it was the Liberal, uh, as Jared hasn't said, but um, you, you probably, if you know anything about it, might know that. And uh, I, I said, yes, okay, I can talk about some of the, I suppose, practicalities in the law of the case. To start off with, uh, uh, and I noticed I just caught the end of the last session, and I... I, I could see that obviously there's been some discussion or questions about copyright already today, uh, and uh, which is good. I don't know whether or not, if it comes up to me, whether I'll have the answers to the questions raised. But um, I suppose just to, by way of, of background to the whole area, what is copyright? And if you haven't ever looked at the Copyright and Related Rights Act 2000, there's a few small amendments afterwards, but most of it's in the 2000 Act, it's probably worth having a look at. Having said that, it's a horrendous piece of legislation. It's quite long. It's very technical. It's very detailed. But you can probably pick out from the table of contents or the index to it, you know, some of the relevant parts. There's whole sections that will be of no interest to do with databases and things like that. But there's parts there that are probably no worth having a read through that are reasonably plain English that describe what copyright is and what your rights are. Uh, the main one is section 17, subsistence of copyright. One thing actually, I suppose you probably won't find in the legislation is a, a simple, clear statement of what copyright actually is. It just says it's a property, property right that subsists in copyright works. If you look at the definition of what copyright works are, they're works in which copyright subsists. <laughs> so you kind of find yourself going around in circles about it. But uh, there are some good statements actually, you know, we say in the, the Patents Office website. Uh, about what copyright is, and they say that no protection is provided for ideas while the ideas are in a person's mind. Copyright law protects the form of expression of ideas, not the ideas themselves. So that's straightforward enough. Copyright is something that has been recorded in some way, so it has to be committed to writing or painting or film or some form of recording an idea. So it's the physical expression of the idea that there is copyright in, not the idea itself. Uh, and so it, it subsists, it's brought into existence when it's created. So at the point of writing an article, for example, that's when copyright arises. I mentioned the Patents Office, and possibly to confuse things a bit more, um, the Patents Office is, I suppose, the intellectual property authority or, or regulator in Ireland, but there's no system of registration of copyright in Ireland. There is in some other countries. It's optional in America. Uh, in Ireland, you don't have to register copyright, and in fact you can't register copyright. It, you don't have to do anything other than record it in, in a particular format. Um, and then it's copyright material. Now, 
there's a tradition or a, a, a practice of people, you know, posting themselves things by registered post and so on, or, or um, I suppose maybe now emailing themselves things. That doesn't actually have any formal basis, but I suppose it's a way of establishing that on a particular date, this was the, the right, the work that I created. Probably these days it's more relevant to see the metadata, so if you type something up in Microsoft Word or whatever it is, that you have the original file and it can be seen when it was created and so on. And, uh, any cases that do end up going to court about copyright infringement, there can often be a huge amount of technical examination of that sort of um, metadata. Uh, there are other forms of intellectual property, and if I would maybe divert for a minute into what's it's kind of a pet hate of mine is uh, the way copyright and intellectual property are, I was going to say poorly reported on, I don't want to be judgmental uh, about someone else's profession, I understand it's a complicated area, but a lot of intellectual property rights and the heading itself are often used interchangeably. So you'll often see newspaper articles saying, um, the headline might be, you know, somebody is suing somebody for infringing their, their trademark, and then the body will go on to say they're accused of breaching their copyright, and they're not the same thing. You might have cases that involve both, but copyright and trademarks are not the same thing, they're not interchangeable, but you do see it quite a lot in, in the newspapers. I, I, there was a few high-profile examples. I remember when the uh, Irish Times were suing the English Times about the Times Ireland, uh, all the newspaper reports were saying the Irish Times is suing over its breach of trademark, but then talking about copyright. They're completely different things. Trademarks are registered, there's different principles, etc. Um, so the different types of intellectual property that there are, there's copyright, as I say, which is one of the oldest and one of the traditional forms of intellectual property, trademarks, patents, uh, database rights, trade dress, domain names, domain names not strictly speaking intellectual property, uh, industrial designs, plant varieties, all sorts of different things, but they, I suppose to make it a bit simpler, the traditional ones are copyright, trademarks and patents, and I suppose if you think of it this way, um, patents usually are, it's protecting an invention, uh, so you know a machine or a particular mechanical process or engineering process, something like that can be patented. A trademark is usually a brand, a trade name or something like that, and then copyright is um, artistic works and not just artistic works in the sense of novels and art, but you know journalism, articles, any form of written word, uh, film, things like that. So. Uh, for yourselves, copyright obviously is the most relevant one, and I, I sort of said there how it comes into being and, and when it operates from, when it's written down, we'll say in the case of an article, or typed out or whatever, uh, and I think maybe this is an issue that came up earlier, uh, who owns copyright? Uh, not always an obvious question at all. Um, what the Copyright Act says, I suppose it has two uh, concepts of individuals involved in the process, the author and the first owner, they're not always the same thing. The author is the person who creates the work, obviously enough, and the first owner, the default is the author is the first owner. So if it's a journalist uh, or anyone writing anything, the person who wrote it is the first author. Um, but the status, I suppose, of the author is a thing that has a major bearing on that. If you're an employee of 
a company or, or, or an employer and you create a copyright work in the course of employment, the employer is the first owner. So if you're an employed <coughs> journalist and you are writing articles in the course of that employment, you do not own the copyright in it. You have certain other rights, but you don't own the copyright in the material. And that's the same for computer software, for anything really. Uh, however, if you're a contractor and you create a work, you are the first owner of that work, unless you have an agreement to the contrary. And that actually works both ways. If you're an employee, you're not the first owner unless you have an agreement to the contrary. So I suppose if you are a high profile enough employee, a big enough name, you might be able to negotiate. I'm going to be your employee, but I want to retain ownership of all of my work and give you a license to publish it this one time or whatever. Um, and then on the other hand, if you're a contractor, you are the first owner unless you have an agreement to the contrary. And I, and I would assume that very often there isn't a, a formal agreement in place with the publisher. It's, you know, you they ask you to, to write something or you submit something and it's, it's published and you've paid a price and that's pretty much it. So I suppose if you were ever to have a dispute about it, a key factor would be what's the industry norm and practice. And I don't know the answer to that myself. I don't know if any of you... But we're always told within the NUJ, unless it's changed quite recently, that what you said, if you're an employee, it belongs to the employer. Yes. If you're a freelance, it's yours. yours. That's my understanding yeah. of what the statute says. There seems to be an assumption on the part of many commissioning editors that if they've paid for it, they've paid for all rights. Yeah. Whereas yeah. In what, the, what they're actually paying for... First probably is for serial right. publication. I, I suspect what they might have gotten mixed up with is section 23, which says that um, if you are, a, for journalists really, uh, if you have sold the rights to a publisher, or whether, if they have them as your employer, or you have sold them the rights to say you own the copyright, you still retain a right to use it yourself so long as it's not to have it published for profit in another newspaper or so on, so that if you wrote, sorry, yeah? In this case, the question was, sorry, I'm sorry, mm. in this case, the question was, a piece had been commissioned, it was, as I understand it, it, had, it was paid for or was about to be paid for, but wasn't being used for reasons which didn't go to the quality of the piece, but maybe something else had happened in the meantime. Okay. The author wanted to sell it on somewhere else, mm. and the, the, the person who commissioned it in the newspaper said, no, it's mine, I have paid for it, mm. or I am about to pay for it. Okay. And that's... I, like, I, I suspect it's a grey area, to be honest with you, because really there should be a, a standard agreement mm -hmm. that's used mm -hmm. and it, it would not have to be complicated you know a one page uh, commissioning agreement Can or we hold questions I, for oh yeah but um, it was actually i was going yeah. on about the same thing sure. like yeah. i know in the netherlands that in some cases they have something kind of in between where you have kind of a contract where they get the piece and i think that's also for photos a lot okay they get the rights especially for online things yes. they get it for like six months okay or a year maybe and after that you can publish the photos on other yeah. places and sell yeah. them to other, but they get the exclusive rights for a certain amount of time. Yes. So that at least for that time, they're the only and one And I think it, it, it wouldn't be unreasonable for a publisher to expect to have exclusive rights, whether forever or for a particular period of time. It wouldn't be unreasonable. 
for them to think. And I suppose if you look at what, and I, again, it's not my industry, so I don't know the rates and so on, but what a, a publication might pay for a commissioned article or, or an article that they that are a feature that they're going to buy versus a um, something from CCC Note that might be used in a number of publications, you're going to pay more if you think you're the only one that's going to have it. Uh, so it's not unreasonable for them to expect to have exclusive rights to some extent. Even if they did, the journalist still has the right to use it again, not for profit, not for selling into to other uh, newspapers and so on. But you know, if you have your own uh, website or, or portfolio of some sort, or, or an, an anthologies, I think would be the main example, um, you still have the right to do that. But it is a grey area without one of two things, written agreements which would usually determine it, mm. or court decisions which you're probably not going to see because it's, uh, and this is a factor in a lot of these kind of cases, it's not going to be cost effective for people to go to court, particularly freelance journalists, over something like this, not to mention the person that they would be suing is someone they probably would not like to be suing uh, uh, in ordinary circumstances. So, um, but like an awful lot of things in intellectual property law and law in general, there's no reason for people not to have an agreement. And maybe it's something, I don't know, does the NUJ not have, uh, they have no kind of guideline or there's, one or something? The NUJ has guidelines on copyrights. Um, we don't have a standard contract. Yeah. Uh, which is it wouldn't be a bad idea because then it, at least... You know, if it was going to be put in place, people have an opportunity to comment on it, and then when they see it written down, they can say, wait a minute, that's not what I want, I want to change this. Uh, you know, and you, you can negotiate it like anything else, or you can operate on the basis of, this is what everyone... So there could be a pro forma. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, can I just say, do we used to have one. Ah. Um, I'm sure I still have some at, at home. Okay. Now, it was written from the UK, you know, NEJ, but I used to use it, okay. and, and like... On this issue, like I thought the editor was quite wrong this morning. Okay. Um, if an editor commissions me as a freelancer to write something, um, I own the copyright. Mm -hmm. I, I have, as you just defined copyright, I'm a freelancer, not an employee. Yeah. Now, the presumption may very well be that I am sort of implicitly or explicitly giving them first publishing right. I'm licen licensing yes. them to be the first to publish it. Yes. But I still own it, yes. and once they've published it, um, I'm entirely free to send it elsewhere. It's my yes. copyright. Yeah. Like if you were to have a court case about it, I suspect what a publisher who disagrees would say is, well, first of all, either side would probably get into what's the industry practice, and that mightn't be obvious either. There might be different people who say different things. Well, I'd be saying what's the yeah. Irish law, and the yeah. Irish law seems to me to be very clear. I'm a freelancer, I'm yes. not an employee, yes. I have written it, I yes. own the copyright, you may publish the first. And that's, yeah. I think the only issue that arises is if either explicitly or implicitly you've given them first publication right and then if they choose not to publish it, yeah. then that's where... And what they may there. say is that, for example, they may say, well, this is what we paid for this article. We would not have paid that amount had we thought we were only syndicating it and it's going to be elsewhere and um, on that basis they would argue there's an implied term that they were going to have exclusive rights or some form of exclusive rights. And shouldn't that be specified in the email? Well it, it, it should and you see and you would be saying well I never, should be paid more. I, I never operated on that basis 
and they would be saying, well, that's... So what part you have then is a failure of contract, effectively. Part of the problem, I think, is just... I've never signed a contract in 15 years as a journalist. Uh, twice, newspapers tried to make me sign them, and I refused to. And the reason was because they contained those big worldwide copyrights. This grants us all rights forever <laughs> for the course of copyright, which is basically me signing away every right yeah. until 70 years after I die. And I refused. I used to send back those, and I've gone, I'm not happy with that bit, I'll send the rest of it. And then they'd never get back to me again. But the problem is, as a result, I have no contract. I just have whatever emails I have back and forth, would you be interested in a piece on X? And that's great 99% of the time, because 99% of the time things are straightforward. But as we heard this morning, sometimes like a piece gets cancelled or gets taken over by events. And because nobody has ever said, well, here's a standard contract, here's a template, here's what we're agreeing, we're all suddenly left speculating over what we don't want. And, you know, as you said, the law is clear. But, but sometimes, there's times when you don't, that doesn't help you because, as Ross has just said, politically, you don't really want to be suing someone that you're going to be pitching to again next week. So, <laughs> basically, we're left with a vacuum, and it seems to me <coughs> the reason for that vacuum is because there isn't a standard freelance contract. So, I would definitely be very interested in seeing that contract. If you could scan it and email it to me, because... Uh, I think at the moment, just if we could have a look at it, see, could it, can it, I mean, can it be updated? Can it, does it need to be fine-tuned for Irish circumstances? And maybe it's something, I don't know, I mean, there's a lot of things to do, but we might be able to get that out to everyone and say, here's something that you should, as a, as a part of your natural routine, just be sending to editors going, Here, here's my terms and conditions. Yeah. And that way, we don't end up having these debates in a year's time wondering what exactly we meant to put that thing that we kind of loosely agreed and to. And to cover things like that example you give, that if it's commissioned and then not published. Mm. Um, or maybe there's a thing that, you know, I can have worldwide rights to second publication, but I have to wait six months so that you get the benefit of six yeah. months for the first pu publication. Because even the pay, whether or not you get paid wouldn't determine it. If, if, <coughs> if you knew where you stood in relation to licensing and exclusivity and things like that, if somebody commissions um, a piece and the price is agreed and the content or you know what it's about is agreed or the length or whatever it may be uh, and if you perform your side of the bargain but they don't publish it and they don't pay you you still have a contract with them well if they commission it yeah is it is it relevant whether they publish it or not exactly if they commission exactly. it they exactly. have to pay now on the other hand the, the flip side of that is the fact that they don't publish it doesn't release it back to you Unless you had retained <coughs> copyright, yeah. Well, so they, what you would have is an action against them for breach of well, just for debt, and they, if you went on and used it elsewhere, would have an action against you for breach of copyright, uh, breach of contract as well, um, possibly. Yeah. So if they didn't publish. Exactly. So I mean, that's a grey area, that, which leads into sort of the next area I was going to get on to, which is what is infringement and. I'm always going to kind of say about that as you know it when you see it, which isn't very helpful <laughs> uh, at all. But I mean, in terms of um, journalism and articles, I mean, there's you know there's if you categorise it two ways, the first category, which is straightforward, copy and paste, and the second is um, some form of reworking slash plagiarism or something like that. And um, that that second category could be. <coughs> What you're describing, which is, and it could be your own work. But I mean, yes, you can you can rewrite your own uh, material. 
if you have, you know, tracks of it that are from the original, and somebody else owns the exclusive copyright to that, well then, yes, you could be infringing their copyright, even though it's your own uh, work. But then, the if the part that you're copying is a direct quote from somebody, you know, you can get into all sorts of hair splitting about that. The the case that um, we started off by mentioning with the liberal, uh, I, I can say that it, it, it involved a number of articles, some of which were direct copies. So that's quite straightforward. The others were not, and some of them were not. Uh, they were still, you know, substantial elements. But there's, I suppose, a, an issue at the moment with um, plagiarism rather than copyright infringement, particularly with online publications. Uh, uh, in various ways, you know, there's, the, I suppose, the two types. One, that just rewrites it. Uh, and two, that says, the Irish Times is reporting that this and that happened. And using, it's a way of getting around copyright infringement. It's probably, it's quite an effective way of getting around it. Because, you know, they're saying, well, this is what's said elsewhere. And so long as they're not copying big chunks out of the original article, they're not infringing copyright. Um, the, the reason, I suppose, that uh, this case arose in RD, um, and I should say, the decision to go to court in these kind of cases, like I, I, I suggested already, probably not very attractive. It's never very attractive, to be honest with you, in Ireland to go to court. It's certainly never attractive to go to court about intellectual property law. And I say that having been involved in, in not media cases, but in quite large other types of copyright and intellectual property cases. You need very deep pockets to do so. And I'll talk in a minute about the different ways that you can do it. Uh, in particular, in relation to the Liberal, and when Jared suggested I might get involved, I suppose there were sort of three reasons I did. Uh, one is I originally I wanted to be a journalist myself, so I sort of had an interest in um, the particular case that arose. Two, I, I did think, yeah, I, I think somebody should do something about this and maybe I can help out. And three, uh, because I had a bit of a background in intellectual property law, but now I'm down in West Limerick where there isn't a huge scene down there, uh, it, for copyright infringement and so on. It was a way, I think, similar to what Claire was saying earlier about journalism, you know, that you can have one area of your work that maybe not is, it's not cost effective or it's not very profitable, but it can support the other or it can be something you do as well. So that, that was that for me. Here's something I can sort of do um, that I'm interested in and would like to keep my skill in. Uh, but as I say, it's not a, an attractive proposition. It came about because, I think particularly for CCC Note, which is an unusual type of media company, that it's not a, obviously it's not a newspaper, and I think the newspapers had taken a view that this was not worth getting their hands dirty with, it was only drawing more attention to the publication. Um, they were going to spend too much money going after it, and they'd never get any of that money back, etc. Um, for CCC Note, I think it was, you know, Court reporting is a particular type of journalism as well. It's it's very specialised. It takes specific expertise and experience. Uh, it's very dangerous. Uh, well, yeah. you know, but you know what I mean. Trials have <laughs> collapsed um, because of people who don't ordinarily do court reporting being sent to cover one day of a trial and then bang, the whole trial collapsed. That happened not so long ago. 
So it's, um, you know, it's something that they are a specialist in and have people who are trained in and this is how they make their money. And they are being, you know, copied wholesale. So uh, when I originally took on the case, I did think that the publisher was in Dublin, which isn't too bad for me personally to get to Dublin. When I discovered it was an RD, it was a little bit of a extra mileage involved and not too welcome to have to go up to RD district court too often. But that's uh, um, what you have to live with. But the first question that arose actually was where to go to court and specifically which court to go to, uh, which might seem like an obvious question. And you think it's something, for example, that a solicitor should know that you'd know straight away, well, which court am I going to sue in? District, circuit court, high court? And the first question struck me was, can you sue in the district court? And actually, in my head, the, the heading for this talk today I was giving was suing for copyright infringement in the district court. The first question was, can you do it? And I didn't actually know the answer to that. And I rang a few colleagues who uh, um, work more in intellectual property than I do, and they didn't know the answer to that. Uh, and the reason was, really, we tend not to know about something unless and until we need to know about it. So unless and until you have sued somebody in the district court, you don't know. Uh, and you can, is the answer. The, the jurisdiction now is up to €15,000. The reality is probably that, certainly in... in journalism, but in a lot of areas, the reality is that most infringement claims you could have would be in the jurisdiction of the district court. Uh, you can get aggravated damages, you can get exemplary damages, but your ordinary loss is usually not going to be more than 15,000 euros. It depends on the publication, it depends on the, the piece of work. In my example, you know, uh, syndicated content, you're usually not, unless there's a huge amount of infringement, going to be into circuit court territory. Uh, which is over 15,000 euros. Um, the circuit court can go up to 75,000, the high court unlimited. The commercial court uh, is also unlimited. And there, you, there are thresholds for entry to the commercial court. You can, the commercial court is a division of the high court. And you can transfer a high court case into the commercial court. Ordinarily, there's a, a threshold. The case has to be worth more than a certain amount of millions. Uh, except in the case of intellectual property. So if you have a copyright infringement case, it doesn't matter how much the case is worth, you can go to the commercial court, but it's horrendously expensive. And I, the only reason really you go to the commercial court is if it's a genuine case or you want to put the other side out of business uh, and exhaust them before it comes to trial. So for, as I say, most of these cases, you're talking about the district court. There's one major <coughs> flaw and problem with going to the district court, and it's one that I was... And, and I think the independent as well were very conscious of at the outset, which was the circuit court, sorry, the district court cannot grant injunctions. So usually, if you're bringing any kind of intellectual property case in court, one of the things you're looking for, you're looking for damages, but you're usually looking for an injunction as well, if necessary, to uh, withdraw something from publication, to stop publication, whatever it may be. The district court cannot give you any kind of order like that. All you can get is an award of damages. And that was a tactical consideration in a case of this nature because particularly, uh, as with a lot of civil cases, a big factor is not so much what's in the law, but who's your defendant and what are they likely to do? What is their reaction going to be if you send them a solicitor's letter, if you sue them? 
are they going to do anything at all and completely ignore you, for example, which is a very real possibility in the case of online publications. They could completely ignore you and you could go through with your case uh, and if you're in the district court, you get uh, an award for damages, which will then be ignored and you could spend a few years trying to chase the, the defendant to get some money out of them. In the meantime, they can work away, they can keep going. So you would normally go in the circuit court or the high court because you want that injunction shutting them down. That costs a lot of money too. So this case was a sort of testing of the waters in one respect to see what would the reaction be and could something be achieved in the district court because nobody wanted to commit the funding, I suppose, to go to the high court for an injunction. And, uh, you know, in the end, the case was settled uh, and the parties were satisfied apart from the nature of the apology uh, and the manner in which it was delivered. But the parties were sat satisfied enough with the outcome. And I think there hasn't, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a repeat of uh, infringement. Um, so it achieved that. No comment. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't read it, I, I should say, so I don't know. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, maybe, um, certainly not of the uh, explicit infringement type that I was uh, talking about. Um, so it achieved that aim, but ordinarily, you would be looking for the injunction, you would be looking for the circuit court, um, but you need to be ready to commit quite a lot of money to that. Because if I give you an example, you know, once you're in the circuit court and the high court, uh, and if you come to a solicitor and say, well, I want to sue this person, and I want to go into the circuit or high court because I need to get an injunction, how much is it going to cost me? And, well, if you win, you get the money off them, if they have it. Uh, but if you don't get the money off them, I need you to pay me. Well, how much is that going to cost? How long is a piece of string might be the answer you get from a solicitor? But certainly you're into the, t the tens of thousands. Um, in the district court, there's a scale of costs, and it's capped. And generally, the most that can ever be awarded is about 3,750 euros. Uh, so that's if it goes wrong and goes against you, that's as bad as it's usually going to get. Um, so that's a, a practical consideration. I suppose, though, like I say, you're, you're not really going to want to find yourself in that situation. It's not attractive to be suing publishers. Uh, but as a freelancer, you're more likely to be suing publisher who perhaps you're not interested in being published by, which is, I, I don't know uh, if my case would be that category, but there are maybe some people that you know are never going to pay for your work and you want to, to stop them. Um, in terms of what can be done uh, and changes to the law, I don't know actually that there's any, the, the existing law is not entirely satisfactory obviously. Uh, and like a lot of civil law, the problem is with uh, enforcing it and the cost of enforcing it rather than the law itself. The Copyright Reform Commission, the, the body the government set up a few years ago, and they did a report, and one of the things they suggested was that the Small Claims Court be changed to, to incorporate copyright claims and that the jurisdiction of it be increased. The moment, I think, is 2,000 euros as the maximum case the Small Claims Court would take that it should be increased to 15,000 euros and that it could then accommodate copyright claims, which I think sounds good on paper. In reality, uh, if you were to take the idea of the small claims court is you don't need solicitors, which is great. Uh, but the reality is, and I mean, we've been used to dealing with the small claims court for, for ordinary you know, 
debt cases or whatever, um, if you take a case, well then the other side might show up with a solicitor. Uh, or if you decide, if you lodge it with the small claims court and then decide to hire a solicitor, you won't get your costs. If you win, you have to cover that yourself. So it's not really an ideal um, solution. And uh, uh, as I say, the, the district court can't make, can't grant injunctions anyway. Um, so it's a pity that there isn't some limited form of a, you know injunction that the district court could give. Uh, there are on the, the sort of tail end of enforcement of intellectual property law, the district court can make orders. And, uh, you know, examples are uh, seizing copies and seizing machines and things like this. So <clears throat> the only one I was ever involved in was years ago where, uh, you know, you would have traders in markets around the country selling knockoff products. It was Tommy Hilfiger was, was one example. And uh, we had a case that Tommy Hilfiger took to against one of these traders for copyright infringement and won, uh, and it wasn't defended, and they won that, and they knew it wasn't going to be defended. So, but the issue was they wanted to remove these from circulation. So once they had their judgment to say it's been infringed, and the people have this machinery that they use to infringe our copyright, you can then go to the district court with that, and you can get orders that can be enforced by the guards uh, to seize infringing copies, to seize machines and things like that. So uh, the district court does have limited powers in that area, but that's no good to, for example, the journalist at the outset or somebody else who needs to take copyright case in the district court. So it would be worth some further thought as to whether the powers of the district court could be beefed up. They've beefed up the district court by increasing the jurisdiction uh, in civil claims up to 15,000 euros. So I think there'd be no harm in giving it a bit more responsibility and a bit, bit more power in, in what it can do beyond just awarding sums of money. Um, I suppose in terms of journalists, what you can do uh, in your day-to-day -day, uh, work with an eye on copyright is um, to obviously keep the originals of your work. Uh, and I mentioned, you know, that posting it to yourself isn't isn't a um, any kind of formality, but it is good to have a some form where you can definitively establish the day that it was written or, 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 or whatever, and um, that you keep, if there's been infringement or you suspect somebody has infringed work, that as soon as you find it, to keep copies of it, and often it'll be online, so to print it off or to make PDFs of it or whatever, um, because that has, that has happened to me, where people have said, oh, here's the article I wrote and so-and-so has infringed it, and by the time they come to me to, to write the solicitor's letter and so on, it's gone from the internet or it's been changed. Um, and it can be, you know, there are ways of getting what was originally published, but uh, it's better if you have it from the beginning. Sorry, if it, if it only existed, if the infringed work only existed for a matter of days or so, or like a week or whatever, the, let's say it happens to me, and yeah. by the time it comes yeah. to you, the, the, it's since disappeared off the internet, does that still count as um, as a case? Or? It, it, it does. Now, the difficulty is, and this is a difficulty for all cases, like what, is your, what are your damages? What are you, what's your loss? And that's not any, that's a very complicated question in copyright. If, for example, I suppose if you're a freelancer or if you're a wire service or something like that, <clears throat> it can be straightforward enough in that if you have a rate, uh, for example, if you're a court reporter and you sell your articles at a particular rate and somebody publishes it without permission, well, that's your starting point. What should they have paid? Uh, I, you, you would have sold it to them if they had asked. 
So what would you have paid for that? And that's your, your damages. If you are someone like The Independent, it's a bit different if, you're, if you have your staff journalists. Um, and then you're into a quite a complicated calculation, potentially, of, and I, I think this is how they would have had to approach it had their case gone ahead. What's your circulation figures? Um, you know, what, what, what are your profits? How much of that do you attribute to the court section of your newspaper? It gets very complicated and questionable. And then, like you say, if the infringing article was only there for a day or two, how much of an impact did it have on your publication? How great was your loss? So um, if it was only there for a day or two, as I say, if you were a freelancer who would sell it at a particular rate, it shouldn't really matter. They should have paid me that. That's my fee and that's what I should have got. It doesn't matter that they only had it there for a day or two. If you are in the situation where you're working out the, a, a, a more difficult calculation of the impact on your publication, the length of time could have a factor in that. Well, it was only there for two days, so I'm only down two days worth of income from that article. Um, but yeah, you'd still have a case. Like in practical terms, are you as likely to go to court about it? Probably not. And again, in practical terms, I suppose what I'm getting at is, if you're ever going to go to court, usually it would be for multiple infringements, for, for really somebody who's persistently doing this, um, and that really you want to put down a marker uh, and, and stop it. Sorry. Uh, two questions on a slightly different angle. Uh, first of all, in relation to books, um, is it mainly the author who has copyright? And secondly, um, turning it around a bit, what are the rules in relation to quoting poems and songs? Um, I heard, for example, that the authors of Happy Birthday <coughs> made a fortune. Uh, in their day before they got a copyright. But it's uh, still in copyright. In relation to was that the one that recently uh, was it's discovered not to be? <clears throat> There's always been an argument over how sound the original claim is, but that claim is still in force in American law. I think if yeah. you Google it, it's been registered with the US Copyright Office, and you will find out a lot of court cases where yeah. they've won a lot of money. Yeah, in the United yeah. States. But I thought more recently maybe they had been. It had been revoked. I think it might be around there, the edge where it's falling out of copyright okay. around there, There's also a thing that the, someone, someone turned up an old manuscript from like way back in the yeah. distant lot of time of the same tune. Okay. So there's, there's question. The claim was that it had been invented by a particular school teacher mm -hmm. and her relatives came along 40, 30 years later or something and said, We own the copyright of this song. This is like in the 20s. Yeah. And then, of course, she lives into the 50s or something. Yeah. So it's still going. That yeah. copyright's still alive. Yeah. But the original people coming along said she invented this song 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, that's always been a bit of. Mm. They asserted it and the court accepted it, but there's always been question marks over it. Just to answer the two questions, one in relation to books, uh, really that, that comes down to the contract that you have with the publisher, and I, I, I couldn't tell you, but I mean, I think it would vary depending on the type of book and the type of author. I, I suspect, and I think that, for example, for uh, novelists uh, and so on, you know, you get book deals, and I think it's kind of like um, bands music bands that your first one to three albums the standard might be that the publisher will get or the record company will own the copyright uh, and unless and until you become big enough you are then in a position to negotiate a contract where you keep your your copyright so that's 
common with um, musicians that their first few albums, uh, unfortunately, they get paid a fee and they might get some royalties, but most of it's going to the the publisher of the record I company. Think most of them in the forward, they have copyrights to the author in fiction, isn't it? Actually, yeah, but I think they will usually have an exclusive license or something like that. Mm. Now, I, 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 I can't say for sure, but I think you know it, it depends on the bargaining strength of the parties. And if, you, if, if you are a first-time author and you're being given a book deal, you're usually, I, well, I, I don't know, but I assume you're quite happy to, um, to take that and you know, take whatever terms are given you. You get a fee uh, and they will have greater rights protected for themselves. And then if you become bigger, you're in a position to say, you're publishing this book and you know, I'm keeping all the rights, whatever it may be. Like, for example, um, rights to, to serialise, rights to dramatise, rights to uh, um, uh, make into a film. Again, with music, similar things happen in that you know, if you want to use a song for an ad or for a, a jingle or to play at a, um, a conference that you're putting on or so on, certain amount of the songs you can license through one agency that controls the copyright for a, a huge amount. They'll just have a rate card and say, well, if you want that song, that's what it costs. And then if you want to use something for, from U2, for example, you have to negotiate directly with the band's management because they have gotten big enough that they can control everything themselves. So I think that's um, similar. The second question... Yeah, I mean, I was writing a book there and uh, I was quoting uh, oh, yes. a poem yeah. by a really an Irish poet. That's a grey area. I mean, there are, there are sections the, the, of the, the... The editors of the book said you need to get copyright permission for yes. this. Part of it is the precautionary principle. Yeah. Editors will tell you get a clearance so that it doesn't come up later on. And it will it'll, it'll depend, I suppose, like how long is the original <laughs> poem and how much of it are you quoting. Um, I was quoting like maybe four lines and it was written in 20 years ago. There, there is a particular literary estate that is highly litigious and that yes. makes extraordinary... This be a gentleman who lives in Paris, then. Yeah, and uh, I've been involved in some of the, the, the receiving no, end of some of those... This wasn't uh, that, that... I know, but um, that, that is, a, uh, again, a position of power that can shut down certain things. Um, well, I just said I could, I just didn't want to go to the trouble. I well, just this paraphrased is, it. This is the reality to an awful lot of, um, of copyright. Uh, uh, and, and a lot of the law that, you know. But like if I'm writing an article and I quote, uh, you know, a verse from a psalm, you know, uh, is, that, is that a breach? If I could It shouldn't be. I mean, it, you know, you're, you're supposed to be able to use things for academic purposes, educational purposes. But what about journalism? So like and yeah, but it's a question of degree. And like a lot of. Um, like a lot of this, there is almost no Irish decided law. There's, there's what's in the Act, there's very few court cases, very few decisions, uh, so the contours of it are not very well defined or explored, uh, and it remains you know, case by case, and usually what happens is you, you, you take the easier route of, as you say, paraphrasing, or getting clearance, or something the of that nature. Well, I have yet. <laughs> <laughs> photographs. Yeah. Is 
tricky one? It's a tricky one. In fact, the um, the, the case I had in RD, the independence uh, infringements were predominantly photographs, as far as I understand, um, which simpler in a way, in that obviously it's it's a copy. Because I've done one or two books where I've, I used photographs and it was nearly went out of my tree because some of the photographs I couldn't remember who took them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some detective work I did find out in some cases. But um, I noticed there a book, uh, actually, it was an edition of Dubliners. Mm. And they had an illustration, a, a, a very nice painting of hope by by uh, a well-known artist now dead, and uh, they had a note saying, uh, we don't know who has the copyright of this, but if, if, they, if, 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 they, if, if they wish they to make themselves known, please get in touch with us. Yeah, and you know, I, I mentioned like keep keeping your originals, um, keeping details and so on. Uh, also, you know, write to people if they're infringing, I think is worth doing, um, but like you say, when time goes on, it's it's funny how things can drift, and it happened a few times. In fact, my grandfather was a writer, and he used to always complain. Before I knew anything about copyright, he used to always complain about. Um, he wrote a number of ballads and things like that, and he would go to uh, Flacule and, uh, and other events and hear somebody stand up and um, uh, sing a song and say they'd written it. He said, "I wrote that <laughs> thirty years ago." No, no, you didn't. And he I actually. Problem with my jokes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he discovered, in some cases, because he, at one stage, luckily for him, his son, who was my father, was a solicitor, so he thought, well, I can get some free uh, uh, work done here and uh, get some letters sent out. Uh, but he couldn't actually prove when he had written them himself, and he didn't have his own originals, and he couldn't put a date on it and everything. So my dad said to him, "Well, there's no point writing and threatening people." With things, if you can't even prove to me that you wrote it, uh, what's the point in, in trying to, to sue somebody else for it? Can I ask a question about, Sorry, about yeah. photographs also? Um, I, gave, I wrote a history paper and I gave a talk recently. And I used photographs from, from a website, on, for actually from Facebook. And these were all photographs that had been put up by a couple of people on Facebook. Mm. I asked the people who put them up on Facebook if I could have permission to use them, mm. and they said yes. Mm. Do I still need to try to find who made those photographs mm -hmm. originally and get permission from yeah. them? Yeah, that's copyright infringement. But this was an educational talk. Well, it? yes, but I'd like to make it to work. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't received it about where those photos came from. I, I would have thought if it's an educational, you know, if it's a lecture or something like that, it's yes, not a copyright infringement. I don't. I, I mean, think that it's can be educational. But yeah, now but if she I want publishes to take a book, oh well, and yeah, it as a book yeah, yeah, talk. yeah. No, I think that then you would have, have to. I have to go back and try yes. to find the original. Yes, yes. Kieran, can I <coughs> can I play devil's advocate here? Mm. Um, on twenty second of October, nineteen thirty eight, a guy called Chester Carlson was mucking, uh, an inventor was mucking around in the kitchen of his apartment in the Queen's District of New York. He pre previously set the kitchen on fire and his wife wasn't pleased about it. But this time he made the world's first photocopy. <coughs> Isn't it the case that we are, if you'll pardon the metaphor, sticking our fingers in a dike that is going to overwhelm us? Yeah. The copyright. Yeah. Yeah. It, Chester Carlson finished off copyright for us. 
unfortunately, and 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 we're well, we're dancing around trying to fix bits here and bits there, but essentially it's over. That's not my view. Yeah, it's view and like I said, unfortunately, like when I said, well, you know, when you always, uh, if you're talking about an area of the law, try to talk about reform, and I, I don't know that there is a satisfactory reform out there to deal with what's happening now. Like you say, it's just such a tide or a tidal wave of infringement that's going on. And most publishers have just shrugged their shoulders. Um, it's not worth their while going after infringers. There are jurisdictional issues with it. I think uh, you know one or two examples they have felt it is worth their while because they were able to target the people in Ireland. Um, but yeah, it's 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 finger in the dike, I suppose. Uh, Joe? Well, no, I suppose the only thing I want to say is like you never assign your copyright to anybody. You can license somebody to publish your work, but you never assign copyright. There is, and so long as you're clear about that, as the copyright owner, you are entirely free to sell the very same piece to as many people as you want. Yes. I, I think what's coming out of that is we have people an awful lot of the time I think aren't clear and we need to yeah. be clear yeah. and have clear written contracts. It, it sounds to me that the publishers aren't clear. Yeah, well, very often. Well, I have seen over the last few years uh, some um, editors and publishers say remarkable things <laughs> about copyright, like incredible things that I would think they should know better, and I wonder that whether they do. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people have, well known editors and so on, have been heard saying things like, well, if it's on the internet. Yeah. Can I just say to Deglan, like there's the fair use clause too. Now I don't know precisely what it is, but like you're allowed to use a percentage of a poem, but it's very dangerous using too much of it because by, by their nature they are small. So if you use too much, you could be using like it might be only four lines, but it might be thirty-three percent of the poem. So you could get yourself. Into That's another unclear uh, area of the Irish law and the the review um, group that was set up has a. A chapter on that mm. and potential reform of that, which would benefit, I think, um, academics and and uses such as what Dagluna has suggested. If you remember the Copyright and Related Rights Act, uh, is the result almost exclusively of lobbying by copyright owners <coughs> uh, who lobby. And the NEC were part. Yeah. Uh, well, we are, we're copyright owners. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. one of those lobbyists. Yeah. Such a freelance but I mean, it's, it's mostly written by publishers. It's, it's Could I just say you know, one more thing, because it hasn't been mentioned yet, that, that while we own the copyright in the, in the words we put on the page, that the publisher will own the copyright in the typescript of our words on the page. So we, while we're free, perhaps, to sell on, depending on what our, our contract is or the license that we give to them, we're not necessarily free even to photocopy the typescript, you know, my article, the Irish Times, or whatever it might be, the Irish Times own the copyright in that particular layout on the page. So just be aware yeah, of yeah. the NLI, though. Okay. You can get a license from that, that licensing yeah. agency the, the, that allows you to yeah. reproduce. But just for us to be aware of that, that we don't own that copyright. I'll give you an example of a case I was involved in. Was It was um, for an educational publisher who published a series of books for uh, uh, national school use. And uh, they, you know, they commissioned various people to do the text, to do the drawings, and so on. So they commissioned an artist to do artwork for it, and paid a fee. And this was a reasonably large publisher. Surprisingly, nothing in writing, no agreement. Uh, anyway, it was a reasonably successful book. 
uh, in educational publishing that doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, it's not a very profitable. There's only a few publishers and they make money, but it's not a, a, a huge money spinner. But it was it did it did okay to the extent that the following year um, they decided that the, the schools wanted more interactive um, posters and things like that. So the publisher said, fine, we'll make some posters with highlights from the book that the teacher can refer to, etc. And they got sued by the artist for using the pictures. And they were horrified. They said, well, we bought the pictures. Um, why can't we put them in this picture, uh, uh, this poster? And that's an example, like what I was talking about near the outset, where both sides had a completely different expectation of the agreement that they had with each other. As far as the, the illustrator was concerned, she sold them uh, a series of pictures solely for use in a particular book. <coughs> That's it. As far as they were concerned, they bought the whole lot, lot, stock and barrel, and they could reuse it, they could put it on a website, they could put it wherever they wanted. Um, but nobody had ever discussed that. It had never come up. Just, will you do some pictures? How much? Yes, there you go. Uh, can I ask you two more to Three more then. One, two, three. One. Because we're getting late in time. Very quickly, just ask if a writer goes bankrupt, does the copyright of all the material they produced prior to their exit from bankruptcy still vest with the insolvency service? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't think so. Yeah, I, 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 I'll be honest with you, I haven't thought of that before. Um, I, I doubt that, like, the insult, well, it depends on the person. You know, if, if their main, if that's their main asset, I, God, I don't know. I think I know this one. Yeah. Is it a moral right and not an asset? No, moral right would be your right to be identified. So if you sell, you can sell all your rights, you can assign all your rights. Um, if you wish to do so, and if that's what your agreement is, you cannot extinguish, the way the legislation says it, that you cannot extinguish your moral rights. So you have a moral right to be identified as the author of any work, and you can't give that away. Uh, it can't be extinguished. Um, so so that would, that would apply. If the answer was that the, uh, the insolvency service or, or the bankruptcy assignee or whoever keeps everything, um, you, you would still have your moral rights, but the moral right doesn't give you a, a right to be paid, it's just to be identified. Uh, I have no idea, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I, I know some other people would probably be able to answer it. I suspect not, but I, I couldn't say. Okay. I'm reminded someone once said, you never want a doctor or a lawyer to say that's an interesting case. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose maybe just one way, of, one way of, of looking at it is like any other asset. If the bankruptcy assignee took it and sold it so if the bankruptcy assignee assigned your they said well you have copyright in these works they're for sale uh, so if you had a book I suppose they could sell the movie rights uh, and you know I don't think they would be able to sell it in a way that forever blocked you from doing something with it afterwards though. so I, I just don't know yeah. an interesting question I'm conscious of time so Feel free to make this answer as brief as you want, but you were saying how um, posting, it to, posting it to yourself is, is, is not a formality or something. I, I was just wondering about the legitimacy of that. How would that stand up in court, if at all? It, it's, it, it, it is uh, of assistance in establishing when you created the work. Mm. Um, 
if there was a doubt about it, you see, it could always be challenged. So, you know, uh, if you, um, and there was an issue with this one on post, if you send something to yourself uh, to show that it was done on a certain date, and then you're, you're, it's an unopened letter with your work in it, and the date is on the franking mark on the envelope. <clears throat> but if you own a franking machine and have changed the date, and on post now have stopped, it doesn't always happen, but technically they will refuse to accept something into circulation that has a different date on it than today's date, uh, because that was they were getting sued by people who said, I sent something on a particular date, and <coughs> look here it is on the stamp. And they said, well, how do we know that you, because I mean, we, in our office, we have a franking machine, we can put whatever date we want on it. Um, so, it, you know, and, or you could email it to yourself or whatever. And depending on how relevant it is to the actual case, I suppose there's always ways of challenging it. But it's, it's not a, it, you know, it, it's a useful way. But I think nowadays emailing it to yourself is probably just as, as good. Or if you have a, a good way of keeping the original file with the metadata and so on. Or just BCC all your pictures to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And last one. Um, it's to do with book reviews. Um, you know, book reviews very often there's a little image of the cover of yes. the book, which was presumably designed by somebody else altogether, even than the author. Now, if a if a book publisher sends you a book for review, I, it's I think it's probably reasonable to assume that they're quite happy to have the cover reproduced because they're looking for publicity. But if you just happen to want to review something that you've actually bought yourself, can you do that? Or are you infringing copyright? Uh, there is a specific exemption for reviews yeah. Yeah. in the Copyright in the Act. Act. You can quote the copy for purposes of review. Yeah. Um, and criticism. Even if, even if it has There is an exemption in the <coughs> Act for, for the purposes of review and criticism. Do you know the number in the Act? I don't, but you, it's I have it at home. Oh, there, there's, it's, it's, if you look through the list of sections, it's, you, you'd find it easy enough. It's Just search yeah. for criticism. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and yeah, you don't have to be any particular type of publication or. Great. Uh, um, so it You don't have to be on the list of the publisher to. Well. Yeah. Great, yeah. thank you. Okay, down the back, I think I saw a hand as well. If you want to ask um, one last one. Yeah, sure. I was just going to say, um, in the journalism Facebook group, um, there was a very interesting point that a girl has brought. She's a court reporter, and it's this issue that we're talking about. That I think it's not so much that people are going to going to take your work and, and and copy and paste it. They're just going to take it and they're going to say, as reported in blah blah yeah. blah, and rewrite it. And she was. Um, distressed because lots of these kind of sites that just kind of, you know, get their stories from elsewhere had just basically used all the information that she'd carefully got in court and um, just and rewrote the story basically. And where would someone like that stand? Often, I thought that was an interesting... Often in the way it's done, uh, they wouldn't necessarily have any action against the person who has done it. Uh, if you reword it properly and are careful enough, However, from the person who's doing that, it's incredibly dangerous, I would have thought, mm. for two reasons. One is court reporting, as I said, is tricky, and you need to know what you're doing, and a very small change, because you're making a lot of changes if you're rewriting somebody's work, you're, you have to change it so that it's not a direct copy. <laughs> yes. And you could easily make changes that would have very serious consequences. And also from a defamation point of view, there are exemptions and protections in the Defamation Act for court reports, um, for things that were said in court. And if you weren't there, 
Yeah, you, no you, you, you know, and I, I would, it would happen, happen often enough where I would have somebody who I've represented in court and they're unhappy with what's in the, um, the Limerick leader, usually in our case, and they say, I want to sue for defamation. And the leader is not at fault because they have reported something that somebody said in court. What the person said in court might be wrong, but the leader has accurately reported it and it was said in court. If somebody reworks that into something else, they have lost any protection they have. And they can be and sued. So it's ongoing court proceedings. That's I, it's, quite it's, dodgy, it's, yeah, I mean, but they've just taken her story from somewhere else. And exactly. They can't back forward. Yeah, and I mean, very serious fines can be handed out, uh, and I we don't have. And people are commenting a lot in the last year or so that something should be done about people commenting online, not news websites or anything like that, but ordinary members of the public. Uh, well, from the case at the moment. Yeah, mm. and um, that some of these people need to be brought in uh, uh, and it's probably a matter of time before it happens. Well, they have been in the UK. Yeah, uh, and been jailed. On, yeah, for just for, and um, also, yeah, I think it was Contempt of court. abuse cases and um, naming people. Yeah, um, but some of the major publications here um, have been fined hundreds of thousands of euros for collapsing criminal trials and it was accidental. It was not malicious or, you know, it, the I think the example I gave, I think it was that the reporter, the court reporter was not on one day, sick, I don't know. They sent somebody else who was a experienced professional journalist but didn't do court reporting. And something slipped into the uh, published report, case collapsed. And uh, I think I think between two or three newspapers, it was over half a million. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's the same one I'm thinking of. Um, arguments in yeah. front of, in the absence yeah. of the jury yeah. were reported. Yeah. 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 You, you printed that. Yeah. You printed arguments with the jury absent. Yeah. Yeah. Times of the examiner. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry to put up my hand at this uh, late juncture. <laughs> it's not a question, but more a comment. But I hope it's relevant and just something that people ought to be aware of if they're doing work for uh, certain places that do a lot of resyndication is that you may be put under pressure to uh, resyndicate court reports based on not even a court report, even a press release or a version of events from somebody who was a part of the case. And I've, I've had to refuse to do that once working for uh, an outlet in Dublin. Um, I refused to do something that would have my byline on it, which I thought was legally dodgy. But bear in mind that depending on who you're working for, the, the editor themselves may not have the experience to, to have that level of cop on themselves and you can't rely on it. Do you mean publish something that they want you to publish something and it's to do with a court case, but it's yeah. not based on not based yeah, on yeah. the actual attendance yeah. of the trial? Somebody else's reporting. Yeah, yeah that, like I'm not, not even on somebody else's reporting, but based on the version of events. Like I say, I, I, I've had people who want to see papers because they don't like the court report. Yeah. That's an accurate report, and similarly, they will then say, "Well, here's a letter I have sent to the editor and told them to publish it, mm. and why won't they publish it?" Well, that's why because yeah. that's not said in court, and they are not going to put themselves yeah. at risk of being sued by somebody else who's involved or the guards coming after them or whatever it may be. It's a quarter to five, and we have the room until five, and I need to pack up. <laughs> so, Rosa, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. And thank you all. The next freelance forum will be on Monday the 15th of October. I have no idea what will be covered. Every single one of you has my email. So if there's any topic you'd like to see covered, drop me a line. If there's any particular person you think would be a good speaker, 
to invite along, drop me a line. I always welcome ideas for the next one, because otherwise nothing happens. <laughs> Basically, I take your ideas and I look good, so give me your ideas. But they're only ideas, so they're not <laughs> <laughs> Very good.